Word of, of correction, um, earlier Andrew O'Bannon was praying and he sent this to me to tell you, not, I didn't just do this, um, he mentioned um, praying for those who have cancer, he mentioned Marlene Ledusky in his prayer and he meant Margaret Corbell. Um, I think most of us understood that uh, when that statement was made, however he did want me to clear that up and let you know, so I wanted to pass that along. If you've never led a public prayer, um, probably before we criticize or even criticize what someone says in it, we probably ought to walk a mile in anyone's shoes who's tried to stand and remember names or situations um, in, in, a, in the public arena. However, I wanted to share that with you. Uh, I have two microphones, um, a, a new tripod and streaming service, and we're on two platforms right now, and I've got the hardest subject that a preacher's ever been given to preach. And so um, I'm hopeful and prayerful that the things we have to say today will be encouraging. I can stand here now, though, because we have a different recording device. I'm not locked behind here, and I feel free uh, this morning. I may not be free after I preach this sermon, but I feel free right now. Um, There was a, a story I was told early on in my preaching about a man who moved to the state of Kentucky to preach the gospel. And his first sermon there, he preached about the, the dangers of alcohol. And a uh, man came to him and said, listen, you can't preach on alcohol around here. Most of, or at least half of your money comes from people who work in making bourbon. And uh, so the next Sunday, he preached on, on tobacco use. Same man came back to him the next week and said, hey, you can't preach on tobacco use around here. Half of your money comes from those who make bourbon. The other half comes from those who are growing and and making tobacco. And the man said, well, what can I preach on? He said, well, I I suppose you can preach on witchcraft. We had not had a witch around here in 100 years. (laughs) Sometimes the most difficult things to preach on are difficult because they matter right now. Because they're real for the moment. Sometimes we we develop in, in preaching and in churches what we would call an echo chamber where we can say and and preach and proclaim and be bold and appreciate the fact that everyone in the room, almost everyone in the room anyway, agrees with everything that we're saying. And so we feel boosted and encouraged and faithful and sound because everyone has has agreed with us and, and bought in. And then there are those who take the opposite approach to preaching and believe if someone's not arguing with you and someone's not mad at you, they're not doing their job. I think that preaching is probably found somewhere more in the middle of those two arrangements. And yet, if you find yourself in the middle, you're eventually going to be on either end when it comes to what to preach. I truly believe that what happens over the next 38 days will be a matter of life and death. I believe that it will have an impact on our freedom, our liberty, our worship, our spiritual well-being, our future, and our very standing before God. Furthermore, I I believe that what happens beyond November the 3rd, coupled with what we do and what we say in the days leading up to it, is also a matter of life and death. That trouble may surely follow us. That our worst fears may come to pass. That life as we know it may be no more. That we may go too far this time. And everything that makes us who we are will be lost. This November could be the watershed moments or moment of watershed moments. 
as a result of what happens in the next 38 days, we could lose what's most precious to us and forfeit the very liberties that allow us to pillow our heads at night with peace. We could forfeit our core beliefs that have sustained our identity since the time that we were, became a people since we have gained our independence. We could fundamentally alter who we are by what we do, what we say, and what we support leading up to November the 3rd. Now, before you break out in applause, believing that those comments were aimed one direction, or before you sign off or tune out, shut down, because you believe they were aimed in another direction, let me just make these clarifying statements. I do not believe that the one who sits in the White House nor in any earthly throne can actually impact the freedoms and liberties that define who we are. Friends, you and I have been made free in Jesus Christ. And there is not a man on this earth that can take that freedom away from us. No one and nothing can separate us from the love of God unless we allow it. We have Bible for that, don't we? If the Son makes us free, John eight thirty six, we are free indeed. Clarifying point number two. I don't believe that our greatest fears have anything to do with what happens in the temporal man-made hierarchies of life. Jesus said, fear him, which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. But otherwise, throughout that passage, do not fear. Matthew 10, 28. I do believe that elected officials can alter and hinder, or I do not believe, rather, that elected officials can hinder or alter our true citizenship. You see, there was a time, friends, when we were not a people. And we have been made a people. But that did not define, is not defined by a, a document or a war or a land. You see, we were made a people long ago when Jesus gave himself on the cross and shed his blood. He might build his church and establish a new nation, a holy people, a peculiar race. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. And I know... That Jesus said, all authorities will be given me heaven and earth, and that will be just as true on November the 4th as it was on November the 3rd, as it is today, and it will be when he returns. I know all of that. So it's not the election that's going to impact us. It's not the vote that we cast that will be a matter of life and death. It's not who sits in a White House who will take away our liberties. You see... What we do and how we act and how we treat one another and the things we say and the things we trust in, they are always a matter of life and death for a Christian. They will always determine where we stand before the Lord. Everything that we support or endorse or encourage, every person that we help, every benefit of the doubt that we give, every forgiveness that's been made, that's what defines us. And it's possible in the next 38 days, if we have not already, that we could absolutely fundamentally dismiss who we are. And never go to a voting booth. Never engage in politics. We can do it in our private conversations, in our Facebook posts, even in our religious attempts to be holy and righteous before God. See, we may go too far in this election season, and it's not about the person we elect. It's about the things that we say. You see, if I put on par the, the, the innocent and the unborn with tax rates and insurance premiums and concealed carry license, I might be on the border of that step. It's gone too far. 
If our worst fear, that is separation from God, might occur because we protect party amendments or economic systems at the expense of showing love and compassion that Jesus would have us show, it could be a matter of life and death. Our liberty in Christ might be in danger because we may belittle one another because they don't think or vote like we do. Life, as we know, might be altered because our trust may be placed in a political office rather than the sovereign God. Open your Bibles with me, if you will, to Isaiah 28. I want us to consider this morning, and the lesson will be a little unique in its format. Because our text for the next hour or two is not going to be Isaiah. I'm not going to be here that long. Um, it's not going to be Isaiah 28. But I think there's, there's a principle that, that's formed here that, that we need to appreciate and understand. I wish we had time to read more than this, but if you go back to verse 14, you'll notice that, it, that his, his um, attention is turned toward those who remain in Jerusalem. Isaiah has, has prophesied, as other prophets have, that God's people will be taken into captivity. And, and that's, that fate is, is already sealed for the northern tribes, that Israel is, is, is going to go, Assyria is going to take them, there's really nothing that they can do, and, and that in, in a very short while they're going to fall. And then the attention is turned to Jerusalem, the southern tribes. And what, what he does in verse 14 and following is what he does throughout the book is he warns them against believing that their salvation comes from a man-made agreement. That the reason they're going to captivity, for instance, is because they broke a covenant with God. And there's no covenant they can make with man that will alter the consequences of breaking their covenant with God. Now, what seems to have happened in this span of time is that Jerusalem has decided they will align with Egypt. They will take the protection of a foreign nation so that when Assyria comes for them, they won't do to them what they did to their brethren. So he, he warns them, and it dropped down all the way down in this text to verse 20. It's one of the most humorous illustrations that I think is used by a prophet. He says, the bed is too short on which to stretch out and the blanket itself is too small to wrap oneself in. He said, this safety you're trying to find is like sleeping on a bed that's too short and covering up with covers that are too narrow. Have you ever done that? Have you ever slept all night long on a bed that your feet hung off of? Or tried to wrap yourself in covers that when you rolled over, it was gone? You don't get a lot of sleep. There's not a lot of comfort. He said, listen, this allegiance and this alliance you're making with the world to keep from my wrath, it'll never work. There's no security in that. If we make our protection and our idols about the things of this world, we will always be disappointed. That's the point of Isaiah 28 and verse 20. Now let's take that and let's apply it to our current day. Since that principle is, is eternal and divine and prophetic, is it possible that we have made our politics and our election season, our God. Looking for and longing for deliverance in the results of man's popularity. I came across a, an article. I'm going to share with you a little bit of that, and, and I actually formed some questions out of it. But this, this particular writer said, he was writing about the God of politics. He says, before we get to the questions, though, let me clarify a concern you might have. At this point, many readers are thinking that this is not about me at all, but rather a passive-aggressive means for me to get others to admit that they're the ones who've made an idol of politics. Let me reassure you that's not the case. 
It's not that I'm above such finger wagging. But I wouldn't be writing an article if I, I would be writing that article if I thought it would work. Because I've learned over the years it would not work. No one is willing to admit they've made an idol of politics. So we've got a checklist this morning. This is not, again, this is also not the bulk of the lesson. If you add all of these little parts up, it will make it up. A series of questions I want us to ponder and consider. If you'd like a list of these, I'll give them to you. I've derived them from a number of sources. I can also give you those sources if you want their complete list. That might help us to determine whether or not we have put our trust too much in an election cycle and not in God. Number one, and I, pro- I didn't number these, so I'll lose the number here in, a, in two or three, so just bear with me. Do, do I spend more time each day thinking about the president or some other politician than I do thinking about the creator of the universe? Do I spend more time listening to the talk of politics on social media, talk radio, cable news, and so on, than I actually spend reading or listening to the word of God in an average day? When I discover that a fellow church member disagrees with my political preferences, do I make assumptions about their level of spirituality based on their political affiliation? When I discover that a fellow church member disagrees with my political preferences, do I mockingly question their level of intellect or education based on their political affiliation? Do I continue to make excuses for the candidate that I support or policies that I support even though I know they stand in opposition to Christian principles? Do I judge myself as having pure and noble motives when it comes to politics yet assume the worst about other people, the other side of the political divide? Do I excuse my own ungodly behavior when it comes to politics rather than asking for forgiveness from God? Have I substituted daily service to Christ for my active role in leading, and my active role in leading people to him for a role in advancing a political agenda? Can I truly say that my, politi- my political choices and my preferences are informed and consistent with the biblical standard of ethics? When I pray for politicians for whom I disagree, do I primarily pray they'll, be law, they'll lose the next election or, gain, or fail to gain power or that they'll be influenced and led to Christ? Would I find it easier to recite the names of 12 presidential candidates than I would the 12 disciples of the 12 tribes of Israel? Will more of my conversations tomorrow be about the po- politics of today or the gospel of Jesus Christ? Based on my thoughts and actions today, does it seem as if I'm more concerned about the next four years than I am with eternity? Do my concerns about the possible political outcomes suggest I may not truly trust God as the sovereign over all nations? And then the final one. Am I more offended by these questions than I am about what they reveal about my heart and my belief in politics? God has some exalted expectations of us, doesn't he? He's not talking to the uninformed, the unrepentant. He's not dealing with the the, the worldly and the materialistic, the idolatrous and the polytheistic. When we turn our attention to the Lord's church and the people in it, he's talking to people who've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ and exalted out of that life to sit in heavenly places in Christ. What does he expect of us in an election year? Three things, and I know there's a sigh of relief with that number. Three things. Number one, I'm expected to remember and celebrate the reign and rule of Jesus Christ. 
I'm expected to celebrate and remember the reign and rule of Jesus Christ. Daniel says in Daniel 7, beginning of verse 13, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, the cloud on the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man coming. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him he gave dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall never pass away, and his kingdom is one which shall never be destroyed. And then that scripture reading that we read, Brad used it Wednesday night in his lesson, and I thought it fitting for our thoughts this morning. The, the refrain of the angels as the Lord ascends back to heaven, that he's glorious, that he's mighty, that he's reigning. Is that our celebration? Is that our refrain? Is that our tagline? Is that our defining moment? Or will we celebrate more when one political candidate wins and the other loses or vice versa? Will we mourn beyond mourning because ours didn't win and forget that our Lord and Savior reigns even above that man? I don't have to have my guy in office because my Lord sits on a throne and he controls it all. And I should live every day celebrating and relishing in that fact I'm victorious in him. I'm expected in a political climate, in a season of politics, to celebrate and remember the reign and rule of Jesus Christ. Number two, to remember that character is determined by practice as well as policy. To remember that character is determined by practice as well as policy. You see, our nation, and I don't have to tell you this, has divided itself, I suppose over the years, but in my time on this earth, I've only noticed it as severe as it is in the last 8 to 12. Of true, pure division over political matters. And what would be nice is if when you looked at the Lord's church, the division didn't last, right? There was no, there was no fault line. There, there was no battle sides. There, were, there, were no anger, there were no anger and, 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 and resentment and, and harshness. But if the world is divided by a gap of a foot. The church is six feet. It's exaggerated among God's people to a point where civil conversations generally never happen. In fact, accusations and, and cutting remarks and, and closed-off friendships, that's usually the result of a political division in the Lord's church. To say... You can't be a Christian and vote for party A or party B or candidate A or candidate B is commonly heard in the open air of church discussions. Probably starting with preachers and then cascading down in the common conversations that we have. Understand, friends, the Bible only speaks in principle to this matter. We have to admit that. You know why? Because the first century church wasn't allowed to elect their officials. So that immediate issue was never addressed. Only in principle are these things spelled out. And when we start applying principles to modern situations, there's going to be disagreement about how they apply. We're going to have to acknowledge that and appreciate that and admit that. Think with me in first century terms for a moment. And imagine if your reaction might be this. Eat meat offered to an idol? I'd never do that. And give money to the idol worshiper so he can buy more meat and offer more meat to idols? 
I'll never cast my lot on that side. And yet Paul said in, in terms of that very issue, food will not condemn us to God. For we are neither worse if we do not eat, nor we better if, better worse if we do eat, and better if we don't eat. 1 Corinthians 8.8. 8. Or think this way. I wouldn't dare celebrate a religious holy day that was found under a different system, under a different time. I'm a New Testament Christian. And yet in response to some early Christians who were born out of Judaism, continuing, continuing to observe the Sabbath, not in contrast with the first day of the week, but in addition to it, he said to them in Romans 14 and verse 5, if one, one person regards one day above another and another regards every day alike, each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. In fact, the, the point of Romans 14 is leave them alone. Don't draw that line. You see, there, there are principles that I must then put into place when it comes to how I disagree on politics, policies, and practices. Did you know that some people vote on the moral integrity of the candidate himself and others on the integrity of the policy? And doing that puts some people on opposite sides of the voting booth? It's just the fact of the way life is each has difficulties doesn't it each has advantages and the things that are defensible about it how about we talk more and condemn less multiple marriages divorce for any cause or supporting homosexual marriage and policy which is worse from the view of, of Christianity which, which is worse I know, how, I know we probably all have an opinion about which is worse. I get that. I'm asking for a book, chapter, and verse on where I can cast my lot and where I can't cast it. Especially if I'm going to belittle someone else's intelligence or spirituality over the choice they do make. Filthy language and rudeness in practice or loose morals and policy? Which am I allowed to support? And still be right before the Lord. Supporting candidates that have favored abortion for 20 plus years in practice or defending the atrocity of abortion to stay in a party platform, which, which am I allowed to do and be okay with God? I have heard, and I'll take both sides of this discussion, I have heard the statement, you could never be a Christian and vote for our current president. I've heard that. You know, in the same conversation I've heard, you can never be a Christian and vote for a Democrat. You know where that leaves Christians, don't you? That leaves Christians at home. But, but, if, but if evil has to be defeated, there are some who will tell you if you don't vote, you're not a Christian. Well, look at the dilemma we're in. Based on the opinion of everyone around us, we have nowhere to turn and no choice to make. And so what happened for a long time in our world, in our country, is we didn't talk about it. I miss those days, by the way. I miss them. But now we talk about it everywhere. And we're right. And everyone else is wrong. Either one of those statements needs to be measured by biblical teaching and personal experience. Okay? I want to I address the, the latter one because I know somebody, okay? In fact, you know them. Several of you have shared his story on Facebook, and I'm not even sure if you know exactly his political affiliation over the years or his religious history. But there's a, a, a Democratic 
state-level politician in Tennessee named John DeBerry. I've noticed several in, in, in this congregation who've seen that come across Facebook and share it because they kicked him out of the party and took away his nomination and wouldn't let him run because he didn't support homosexual marriage and abortion. They've been a Democrat for 20 plus years and ran on that platform the entire time. He's a gospel preacher. A man who has stood in the Memphis area for truth for multiple generations. I find it offensive, friends, that someone would tell that man, not knowing him, five years ago, you're not a Christian because of where you stand. When they really don't know where he stands. All they know is there's a, there's a, a letter or a party attached to his name. As he fights for God's truth in an arena where most people could care less about it. We need to be very careful and understand that character is determined both by our practice and our policy. And making someone choose one or the other doesn't seem to be Christ-like. At least choose it the way I would. Number three, and I believe this observation has to be made, and finally, if we're going to have the exalted character we need and live up to God's expectations, we're going to have to remember that God doesn't need America free, rich, or powerful to accomplish his will. He didn't need Israel. In fact, he told them, Jesus, or they were told, I'll, I'll raise stones to, to Abraham and, and make them his descendants. I don't need you. I'll use you, and I'll love you, and I'll protect you, and I'll forgive you. But the sovereign God of heaven doesn't need us. He can and will accomplish his will and has. But if he needs anybody, friends, he needs this group of people right here. Spiritual Israel. The church. Because nations will rise and fall. And he will give them to whomever he will. And in the end, his will will remain accomplished. We didn't get there in our, in our series in the book of Revelation. It was my intention to end that series of lessons. And so I'll end this lesson with it. With the prayer of John when he said, even so come Lord Jesus. That, that, that prayer is not a prayer specifically about the second coming of Jesus and the end of time. You see, the book of Revelation says this, God's people will be victorious and Rome's going to fall. I believe that it's talking about Rome. It's whatever oppression is going on at that time, whether it's Jewish oppression or Roman oppression or some other oppression, God's promising in the book, I will vindicate you and your enemies will fall. Now understand what that meant. As you look at the course of Revelation, that means the country they live in can no longer be a country. The men that sit in political seats of authority can't sit there anymore. The, the point of Revelation is I'm going to bring this current regime to its knees so I can protect the church and so I can protect my people. And John says, I'm ready for it. I'm ready for it. If it means the fall of my nation to protect truth and God's people in righteousness, I'm praying it will happen. That's what John said. My question was going to be in that sermon, and it'll be to you this morning. Could we ever really pray that prayer in our world? I love the nation that we live in. 
I'm thankful for our history and our heritage and our ability to adapt and to make right the wrongs in our society and to progress. I love all of that about us. But friends, if it was the advancement of the kingdom or the United States of America, our prayer ought to be, even so come Lord Jesus, every day that we live. I've got two mics, two streaming services, and the hardest assignment preachers can be given in the current culture that we live in. May God bless our lives that we might be balanced and loving and kind as November 3rd approaches. Because if the Lord does not return, we will still live among the same people and be a part of the same church as we were before. Will you bow with me in prayer? Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would humble us this morning in your sight. That you would forgive us when we have made anything of this world greater in you in our mind. Give us a spirit of cooperation and love. And may we celebrate every day the reign of our risen Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Whatever your need is this morning, if you want to become a Christian, we'll talk to you about that. We'll show you from Scripture what you need to do. If you want to come home and you've been away, we'll pray with you and for you. If you're struggling, need the prayers of the church. If you're discouraged, don't leave. But come home and let us help while we stand and sing.